Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we talk about an awesome year for movies, which is every year. I am Josh Bell, writer and film critic, and along with me is... I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, captain of industry. Captain? What industry are you a captain of? Industry. <laughs> <laughs> so in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the year 1994, and on this episode, we're talking about uh, one of the most notable uh, foreign films of 1994, which is Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, uh, which was released uh, in Hong Kong uh, in 1994, although it did not actually make it to U.S. theaters until 1996, when it was brought here, like, single-handedly almost by Quentin Tarantino. He's a huge advocate of this film. Yes, pro wrestling fans will know Rolling Thunder as Rob Van Dam's one of his signature moves, but movie fans might remember Rolling Thunder as Quentin Tarantino's short-lived distribution company, you know, where he brought in uh, a lot of movies from Hong Kong, uh, not a lot, a few, and a few indies, and uh, re maybe re-released a few 70s grindhouse things. Yeah, that sounds like something Quentin Tarantino would do. Um, but not Rob Van Dam. No, no. But thank goodness we got a lot of Rob Van Dam references into this episode. <laughs> so far, too. Wong Kar Wai and Rob Van Dam really of equal stature. If I only think. there was a frog splash in this movie, I could have made another I, one. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> um, so when it was finally released in the U.S., uh, Chungking Express made $600,000 at the U.S. box office, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but is pretty good for a movie uh, on this level and uh, of this type, I think. I bet you Rob Van Dam made more than that during his time in the WWE. Let's just move on from <laughs> Rob Van Dam, really. You got it. Uh, <laughs> uh, when it was released in Hong Kong, Chungking Express was nominated for 10 awards at the Hong Kong Film Awards which is the top uh, awards ceremony for film in, uh, in Hong Kong, ultimately winning Best Picture, uh, Best Director for Wong Kar Wai, uh, Best Actor for Tony Lung, and Best Editing. Uh, so it was hugely successful and acclaimed uh, in its native country, where Wong Kar Wai was already a notable, respected, famous uh, filmmaker. But this really brought him to another level, not only internationally, but also uh, in Hong Kong. Um, and interestingly enough, I think this movie is very well regarded now. And obviously, uh, Tarantino was a huge fan of it. Um, but when it was released in the U S it got kind of mixed reviews, I would say that were critical mainly of its MTV style visuals, which seems sort of quaint at this point. Yeah, I, I, uh, would, I'm going to in advance disagree with all of those people, so. <laughs> So we'll start with Janet Maslin in the New York Times, who said, uh, lurching vertiginous camera work is one hallmark of Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, a film from Hong Kong with a tirelessly capricious sense of style. While its slender two-tiered plot links love affairs that happen largely by accident, the film's real interest seems to lie in raffish affectation. Mr. Wong has legitimate visual flair, but his characters spend an awful lot of time playing impish tricks. She also said, uh, while Mr. Wong's visual energy harks back to early new wave experimentation, it also has a substantial rock video component, which suggests that the detritus of mass culture has a way of coming home to roost. Lots of big words in that review. Yeah, like kudos to you, National Spelling Bee Award winner <laughs> Janet Maslin. But uh, why is 
Uh, she's so down upon music videos, like music. I mean, did she not? I guess she didn't consider them an art form back then. But I feel like the usage of camera was probably the strongest thing in this film. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think maybe this was right around the time when uh, music videos were just maybe transitioning from being this look down upon thing to directors like David Fincher graduating, I guess you could say, to becoming serious filmmakers. And maybe that was of an inflection point. I guess. I mean, this is 94, right? So reality bites. Well, this came is out. really 96 when these reviews okay, were coming out. Right. Yeah. Sure. But this movie yeah. came out in 94, was yes. filmed in 94. Right. Like, it right. was super quick the way. He yeah. He filmed this movie. movie during a break in editing on another movie. Yeah. Ashes. Uh, Ashes of Time. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I think I remember Reality Bites had like the MTV producer, you know, as one of the characters and they really played with Dutch angles and stuff like that. But that was. I felt like more to show like, oh, cool, we're hip. And this like, I mean, I mean dude, it takes place in a bustling uh, central city area. Like you want that kind of like kinetic feel to it. Right. No, I agree. I And that was why I was sort of surprised that this was not only Janet Maslin's criticism, but something that I saw in everything that I hey, read Hey, about. Maslin. This is twice now I got bones <laughs> to pick with you. We're going to get her as a, a guest and see if we can dispute her old reviews. <laughs> Um, Peter Travers in Rolling Stone, uh, certainly a place where they would have some respect for music videos, uh, says there is no mistaking Wong's talent. His hypnotic images of love and loss finally wear down your resistance as seemingly discordant sights and sounds coalesce into a radiant crazy quilt that make, can make you laugh in awe at its technical wizardry in one scene and pierce your heart in the next. Chungking Express is pulp, Hong Kong style, exasperating and exhilarating. So he liked it, but maybe didn't love it. Okay, but did he use big words other than exasperating I mean, and exhilarating? Peter Travers is not a big words kind of guy. <laughs> so what's never the point? Been. What's the point of writing a review? Yeah. As a person who writes reviews, I will say I enjoy using big words sometimes. And as a person who also writes reviews, I don't know any big words. <laughs> Uh, and uh, our friend Roger Ebert said, this is the kind of movie you'll relate to if you love film itself rather than its surface aspects such as story and stars. It's not a movie for casual audiences and it may not reveal all its secrets the first time through, but it announces Wong Kar Wai, its Hong Kong-based director, as a filmmaker in the tradition of Jean-Luc Godard. And that was the quote that I resonated with the most. I had actually marked that in my notes as well. Uh -huh. um, because the idea of uh, a film lover loving the form as opposed to the story I thought was interesting. And I thought was a fair assessment and criticism of the film. Yeah. And, and to me, I guess mentioning Godard and the French new wave is, is sort of a stronger influence that I noticed here than like the idea of it being a music video style thing. Uh, I mean, part of the reason that you're going to get that music video style thing is because the use of the soundtrack, which was done really sure. well. Yes, right? And yes. you know, it's got, um, uh, Faye, what's her name? Uh, Faye Wong. Yeah. Her yeah. version of, uh, dreams by the cranberries. Right. And yeah. she's like a huge, uh, star. It would be like casting Madonna or something like right. that. Right. Yes. Cause she's a singer and actress and all. Yeah. This stuff. She's mainly a singer. I was like, she's only been in like maybe three or four movies in her entire career. Her nickname's the diva. So she's okay with me. Yes. Cause I'm the diva of awesome movie year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so had you ever seen this movie before this viewing? I had never seen it. I had heard of it clearly, you know, yeah. um, but I didn't know anything about it. And, uh, yeah, it was all new to me. Yeah. 
I had seen it, I mean, definitely not in 94 or in 1996, although I was hugely into Quentin Tarantino in 1996. I'm sure I would have paid attention to what he recommended. Wait a second. You didn't go to Hong Kong in 1994 <laughs> and scope I this mean, one out? I so. love movies, but maybe I wasn't quite that dedicated to it. Um, but I had seen it, I think maybe like 10 years ago or something like that as a, you know, important movie to watch. I've seen a, a few other mm -hmm. Wong Kar Wai films as well. Um, Producer David Rosen of the Piecing It Together podcast. Have you seen this movie? I have not. I rented it many times in the early days of Netflix and just never got around to watching it. So <laughs> I, I'm woefully unprepared. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do with your time? You rent Netflix movies and don't watch them? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's some background on uh, Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Did you have any other quotes or anything, uh, Jason, that you had uh, marked down yeah. on this? Uh, kind of about the form, some Wong Kar Wai quotes. So like Josh said, it was... Um, you know, while he was taking a break from ashes of time. And uh, he, he, I like this quote from him. I thought I should do something to make myself feel comfortable about making films again. So I made Chungking Express, which I made like a student film, which is interesting because the more research you do, you find out they would, he would write during the day and they would film what he wrote that night. Right. That's baller, dude. Like this dude, you know, whatever you feel about the movie, that's, that's a, a pretty, pretty uh, ballsy thing to do. So that was um, the only other thing I wanted to bring up in the lead up to our opinions on it. Uh, so we'll be right back and talk about our thoughts on Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this 1994 episode, we are talking about one of the most notable foreign films of the year, Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. I think more, you know, more than just the year. You know, if you asked people what are name 10 foreign films, this would probably be one of them that uh, anyone who can name 10 foreign films <laughs> might know. Very few people. I'm imagining some sort of Billy on the street thing where he yells, name a foreign film. <laughs> name 10 of them. Um, yeah, I think as far as Wong Kar Wai goes, I think maybe In the Mood for Love, which is uh, a few years later than this, is is even more highly acclaimed and notable. But yeah, certainly this is a movie that, which is why it sort of surprised me that the reviews were a little muted when it came out, because it has such a huge reputation at this point. Um, and I remember liking it when I first saw it, but I think it was one of those things where I was more like checking off like, oh, I should see this movie. And then then I saw it and OK, I've seen it. Um but I, I liked it. It, it. It's it's got a really good mood to it, I think. Um, You're in the mood for Chungking Express. I am. Look yeah. at that. I pieced it together <laughs> like David Rosen, our producer, does on his movie podcast, piecing it together. How many puns in a row do you think you could have <laughs> just strung together? Oh, let's, let's stop it. <laughs> uh, I didn't like it that much, and it bummed me out because I really like the first story. It's basically two love stories that uh happen i guess organically or by chance right right and um i was really digging the first one and then the second one bored me a lot and the second one is the bulk of the movie right so. yeah it is a little lopsided i think it's about 40 minutes with the first story and then an hour or so with the second story yeah and i mean so much so that i went back and watched the ending again because i was like did i miss something here like yeah what, what is going on here yeah um but, um, you know, at least I watched it, unlike our producer who would rent it and not watch it. Yeah. Hey, I didn't watch it a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> or in preparation for this episode. Um, 
Yeah, I, I I mean, I don't blame you for that criticism. I definitely felt watching it this time at the end of the first story, like a little disappointed that that was the end of that story. And I couldn't remember if there was something at the end that kind of tied them together more, like we would see those characters again. But yeah, there is not. Yeah, so basically story one is about a cop and a drug smuggler. And uh, it's from a clarity standpoint, I wasn't very clear on everything that happened. But yeah. again... Just the energy and the camera work uh, really worked for me. And, you know, then we moved to a different cop, um, which transitions pretty easily from one cop to the next. They're in like a snack shop. Right. And the, the snack shop is kind of the central location that ties these. Together. Yeah. And it's based on a real snack shop um, called the Express or the Midnight Express or something. Right. Yeah. Like I think that. it's Midnight Express. And Chungking is the area of the city that this right. movie takes so place. So there were, there were the Chungking mansions. Uh, which are supposed to be like one of the cheapest places to live in Hong Kong. It has like 4,000 people, but they're also shops and, you know, kind of um, hotels, restaurants, and it's a big gathering place for different minorities. So you're getting a real melting pot right. of society there. So the second one is about the waitress or the, you know, uh, the employee at the food stand and another cop. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you that, uh, the second story maybe is a little drawn out, although I, I was fine with the amount of time they spent on that. I guess maybe I would have liked if they had just given a little more time to the first story, which feels almost uh, unfinished or a little abrupt at the point where it ends. Um, but again, I think this movie is about atmosphere and mood, maybe more than it's about the plot. Certainly you're right about the plot in that first half where the Brigitte Lynn's character is is a underworld smuggler of some kind. I had no idea what her goals were or yeah. what she was trying to do. And it's not really the point of the movie. I didn't either. And I will agree with you. Um, you know, I have this issue with Brit Marling movies because I really like Brit Marling, right? But when you get to the end of her movies, you're like, no, this is where I want to see what happens next, right? Yeah. And that's how I felt about the first story, the first love story. It's like, because they don't really come together till the last maybe 10 minutes of that story, right? You're yeah. seeing them separately each time. And uh, the cop is a very weird <laughs> uh, character who he gets dumped by his girlfriend named May at like the beginning of April. So he says, I'm going to give myself till May 1st to get over May or whatever. Right. And Which keeps, is also his birthday is May 1st. Right. And he yes. keeps buying uh, canned foods that will expire on May 1st. And he's like, if she doesn't take me back, I'm going to eat the canned foods, right? Something yes. along those lines. Yeah, it's all pineapples. It's canned pineapples. And he eats uh, all of them, I think, in the final uh, moments of April. Yeah. It looks like he was chunking pineapples oh. to expressly eat. Never mind. Just I'm, stop. Just I'm done. Please, I know, please I'm not stop. proud of this, guys. Yeah, but anyway, be. yeah. So they finally get to the, like, you know, smoky nightclub and they meet up and then they go back to a room together and she passes out and like he washes her feet or something along those lines. Right. And that's uh, it. He and cleans her him. shoes. He cleans her shoes. Yeah. Kind of like washing your feet. So. Yeah. Like a, like a Jesus thing almost with the <clears throat> washing of the feet. Um, yeah. That kind of came out of nowhere. We didn't know he had like a, a shoe or foot thing. Well, you know that why would Quentin Tarantino like this movie otherwise? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is true. Oh, foot fetish shot. Um, At least my my puns are, you know, benign. Uh huh. No, I don't think Quentin is ashamed, nor should he be. No, if he has a foot fetish, more power to yeah. him. Yeah. Which we hear he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I liked that that first story was sort of, I mean, both of them uh, are a little like this. The, the first one more so about almost like this missed connection. Like they don't really, they don't get together. They don't even 
barely touch, I think, uh, in that in that story, but that, that it's all about the the possibilities that are that are missed or uh, that don't come. And uh, I like that as sort of melancholy tone to it. Yeah, it's melancholy, but it's got so much energy. The yeah. first one because of the camera work. And uh, we should mention Christopher Doyle, the uh, right, the famed, cinematographer. Yeah, DP from uh, he does just is Australian and basically made his whole career in Hong Kong cinema. He's done a, some American movies, uh, the remake of Psycho, and uh, <laughs> and Made, the great John Favreau follow up to to. Uh, Are Swingers. you going to call Made a great movie? I called it a great John Favreau follow up. I liked it. It's a good movie. All right, I yeah. like Made. Made's a good yeah, movie. All right, Dave rented it and watched it. I, yeah. I did watch that one. You're right. No, but I'm um, saying it's interesting. No, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, Christopher Doyle, right? Yeah, and the other thing that really set the mood was the soundtrack and the repetition of songs. Yeah, you know, the first one, um, the song is Dennis Brown's "Things in Life" that keeps getting repeated. Yeah, and that. It's just a cool skanking reggae thing that's yeah. like, you know, um, really, really sets the the mood and like keeps you at a certain energy level because of the usage of it repetitiously. Yeah, no, I agree. The use of music in this movie is great. We mentioned uh, Faye Wong's version of uh, of Dreams by the Cranberries. Yeah, which gets used twice, I think, yeah. two or three times. Yeah, and there's uh, What a Ma- Difference a Day Makes. And the Mamas and the Papas, the huge, you right. know. Uh, California Dreaming is the song that carries the second half of the film yes, over and over. Again. Yes, and I maybe could have used one or two fewer uh, plays of California Dreaming uh, by the end of the movie. Did you get down on your knees and pray for <laughs> one or two less? Yeah, that's a lyric from Cal. Never mind. Um, but I mean, it goes with the story. Obviously, Fei Wong's character is obsessed with that song, and um, it, it informs the decisions that she makes and the way she kind of approaches life. And this is where the movie lost me. Okay. Because okay. like the first segment, like I said, I'm like, what? I don't understand all of this, but it's really like mesmerizing visually. The music sets a really cool mood. So like, cool. Like I'm interested in this. Yeah. The second love story, which is not paced as quickly. Right. Right. <clears throat> Faye has a crush on number 633. That's the officer's Something name. Something like that. Yeah, right? the cop's name. He doesn't ever get a name. Yeah. He's just got a number. And um, the cop's ex drops off a letter at the shop, which it contains a key to his apartment. She's broken up with him, says, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Here's your key, right? He never takes the letter. She takes it, opens it up, and now she has a key to his apartment. And she goes in like every day, cleans, redecorates you know does all this stuff and i mean i'm guessing like it wasn't clear as it could have been that he noticed all this but i'm guessing he noticed all this and he's just like oh cool some mystery fairies coming in and cleaning and redecorating and yeah why not i'll just go with that right yeah i it wasn't clear to me either and i thought it maybe was implying that he didn't notice that he's so oblivious or that he's so uh caught up in his melancholy his sadness over his ex having left him that he doesn't even realize that things are changing well, in his what apartment. a what a great cop if he doesn't even notice <laughs> that his apartment's being cleaned by someone else like yeah on the regular or whatnot neither of these are guys are great cops i saw i don't have the quote specifically but i read something where wong kar wai was asked why are the characters in this movie cops and he said that at the time, the way to get a movie financed in Hong Kong was to make a poster that had cops on it. And so that was the reason Clever. to get the money that he had to make them cops so that it looked like it was some sort of crime drama or action movie. And I don't think he has any interest whatsoever in the practice of being a police officer. Um, 
there would be a lot more crimes if, <laughs> if this is how cops act. You know, IMDb has it listed as a comedy crime drama. Which is, it is it's, neither of those it's things. It's not a comedy, and there's there's no crime in the movie. I mean, there Unless, is crime. Frankie, there's there's yeah. Brigitte Lynn's character. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's yes. drug smuggling and shooting, if you yes. count those as crime. <laughs> and then, you know, she's breaking in and everything. But, right, yeah. Um, yeah, I was actually surprised in that first half because I think when we were talking about it beforehand, uh, about watching it and you had never seen it. And I was like, oh, it's a it's a sort of this languid romantic drama. There's no action. And I had forgotten how much shooting and running and stuff right. there is in the first and, half. And just talking about it, clearly I did too, right? <laughs> but, but that's how little it means to the film. Right? right. Like, you know, that all the drug smuggling stuff meant almost nothing to the overall movie. Right. It's just a way to make that character this kind of mysterious person. And, you know, it goes along with the way she dresses with her blonde wig and her sunglasses and trench coat and everything that she wears that makes her into this mysterious sort of femme fatale figure. So getting back to my point, that's where it first lost me. Right. I'm like, come on, man, this is he doesn't notice anything. Right. Right. And then he catches her and he's like, oh, okay, cool. We should go on a date since you've been breaking into my house and cleaning it for me. Right. So she's been going through this effort to break into his house on the daily, redecorate, clean it, his apartment. This is how much she likes this guy. And then when it's time for them to go on a date at the restaurant or Club California, instead, she flies to California in the United States to start a new life. Like, very strange. She's very strange. I mean, I think that's uh, like, the point in a way is that these characters are strange people. If you had a crush on someone for a year and to the point where you were stalking, literally breaking and entering, and then they were like, cool, I, I appreciate that uh, stalking you've done. Let's go on a date. Would you be like, ah, instead, I'm going to fly to the other side of the world without telling you, you know, I'll have my uncle who owns the food stand tell you? Yeah. I mean, it is definitely not rational behavior, but I think one of the themes of this movie is the romance of possibility versus actuality. And everyone in this movie is sort of uh, mesmerized by the possibility of being with the other person. And they never, the reality never kind of comes through. And I think maybe for, for Faye, it's like she loves the idea of him as an idea, but when confronted with like actually face-to-face -face interacting with him, that's not something that she can deal with. So she'll just go to California and start right. a new life. Well, she was obsessed with California, as we previously right. had established. Demon, yeah, yeah. It seems like she would at least go out with the guy. I don't know. I Well, okay, if that's the argument for it, then I'm going to say that the character was not, at least in my mind, built to the point where I was like, oh, yeah, I could see that. Like, we, we don't, even all the crazy stuff she does is mostly because of her obsession with him, right? So then... You know, if we're going to go by that logic, then the next step would be she would go out with him. She wouldn't do the exact opposite of that. But I mean, I think the fact that you're applying logic to this movie is your mistake because it's a sort of dreamlike thing. That's where we get into the music video idea or even the, the Godard influence, where those are things that don't follow linear plots with characters who act in rational ways. That is a fair critique of my critique. <laughs> and but that is where the movie lost me. Yeah, no, that's place. fair. That's fair. Um, I think it's interesting just to go also to the idea of of her going to California. You know, she's obsessed with California in some of the same ways that she's obsessed with uh, with the cop. And she goes to California. And then when she comes back a year later and we see her talking to him and he says, how was California? And she's like, oh, it was nothing special. 
And again, the idea of it was better for her than the actual experience. Yeah, but then she's leaving again. The next, she's a flight attendant. Now. Right. She's leaving the next day. And, you know, again, he asked her like, hey, you know, I bought the food stand from your uncle. Do you want to stay for the opening? And she's like, uh, nope. <laughs> you know, like she basically, she had drawn him this like fake boarding pass and now she draws him a new one. And it's like, hey, maybe we'll meet in, you know, the science of sleep or something like that. Some, uh, another fantastical romance. Yeah, I like that happened. movie. Me too, but that's not this awesome movie. No, yet. it's not. 2008 maybe? I don't know. Dave, what year? Sounds about right, but let me look it up. Please, important stuff there. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think all your criticisms are are fair, and and especially if you are invested in the idea of the love story here, which it it, it gets you invested in that. Uh, and I think the performances are good to where we like these characters and we kind of want them to be together, and yet it's it's confounding those expectations uh, every time they might come to fruition. It was two thousand six. Oh, all right. Hey, um, well, the thing is this, right? Like the second story, um, at least the first story, right? There's like, you know, we said like a drug smuggler and she's got to shoot the guy who wrongs her and everything like that. The second story, literally every action is based around this potential romance, right? Right. right. So how would I not be invested to see? I'm not blaming you for being invested. I think the movie gets you invested and then dashes that and that's part of what it's doing on purpose but i think it's fair to be like uh disappointed or dissatisfied with that so that's yeah overall what i think is you know going back to the ebert uh you know um review like the use of film as a narrative tool or as a storytelling mechanism like just awesome the use of soundtrack the use of editing the use of, uh, did you know, by the way, the editor was the same in the art design. He also did the art design. Oh, yeah. It was uh, William Chung Suping. And uh, he, I think he won for editor, right? Yeah, they did win for best editor. And he was up for also art, art uh, direction. So yeah. For him. Um, but um, yeah, man, I just thought like the camera work, the music, the look, the feel of how crowded the area was, all that stuff worked for me. The only thing, and you know, and the performances worked for me. What didn't work for me? The story. The story, yeah. right. And that's something that, that Ebert says, that if you are invested in thing like, things like story and characters, this movie may not work for you. Um, yeah, I, I love the aesthetic of this movie. I think it looks great. And, and if it recalls music videos, some of the sort of like, I don't know what you call it, the like blurred slow motion type uh, effect made me think of like YouTube videos. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. Bittersweet Symphony. Did that do a lot of that where he's walking down the street? Yeah, maybe that was a thing where they, yeah. did they shoot it backwards and then run it forwards or something like that? I forget. Uh, I don't remember, but yeah, it definitely, you know, look, if you're going to say this feels like it's from the nineties, this is like the best version of like a movie that like utilizes what was hip at that point in time. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I liked that a lot about it. I don't look down on the style of music videos and I think, um, Filmmakers taking influence from that, if indeed he did, uh, is is a positive thing. The second story, which takes place in like the central area, uh, Lan Kwai Fong in Hong Kong, right? Yeah. I know he shot there because he said he hadn't seen people really shoot there. And like the apartment where they shoot a bulk of the story, there's an escalator that goes up. Right. That, that has some nice through. effects. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're kind of like, again, the camera work 
just awesome. Like, you right. know, we're kind of repeating ourselves. Right. In that, like, but it's true. I mean, I think you and, and, and I think this is true of a lot of Wong Kar Wai films. And I've, I haven't seen all of his films, but I've seen uh, three or four others. And I think a lot of them, even like he's made a bunch of martial arts movies like Ashes right. of Time, which he was taking a break from when he made this was a martial arts uh, period drama. And those movies are all about atmosphere and style and much less about following a linear story. Did you ever see Fallen Angels? I'm not sure if I've seen Fallen Angels. I have not, but did you know it was originally part of this movie? Right, I did read about that. There was a third story that he was supposed to do here that he spun off into a, its own yeah, film. So, And I think this might have worked. Your com our, our, our mutual complaint about the sort of imbalance between the two stories might have worked uh, better if there had been three stories and the balance was a little, I don't know. I don't think so. All right. But I haven't seen that movie. So, but I felt like this was what, like about an hour 40. That was, I didn't think yeah, it needed I mean, to I, be any longer. No, I didn't necessarily want it to be two and a half hours long. And I think that's part of why he made that other story into its own separate uh, film. Did you know that Fei Wong recorded dreams in both Cantonese and Mandarin? I did read that. That's yes. Cool. And uh, that apartment that you're mentioning uh, where they shot by the escalator is uh, Christopher Doyle's apartment that he lived in. Oh, that's awesome. I yeah. wonder if they mentioned that on. Um, he was on an episode of Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. Oh, did and, they go through Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah, and I think Doyle might have even shot that episode. So I'd like to go back and watch that again. But yeah, I bet you they brought that up on there. That's pretty cool. He's he's a, he's really fun to watch as like a cinematographer. Yeah, he's done. I mean, he shot I think almost every Wong Kar Wai film, and if not all of them, and uh, yeah, does amazing work and and brings a probably a different perspective. As you know, I think he's Australian yeah. and, you know, coming from outside versus hiring a, a cinematographer in Hong Kong. So, you know, that quote that I had mentioned where Wong Kar Wai said, I wanted to make something like I would a student film. Yeah. Like in some ways he exactly does that. Right. Because right. like he takes all these risks that like more uh, established filmmakers might not with the style of shooting. And it really works for him and does amazingly. And then. If you had read the script, you'd be like, oh, this is like some college student. <laughs> right, right. And it's like sort of musings about love. And and yeah, I mean, the fact that this is a movie that he just made during a break from another movie where at the time you could say that that was just sort of, you know, this was the less important film or whatever right. he was just doing for fun. And and in the years since, you know, this has become the important film and people pay very little attention to Ashes of Time. Right. I remember that uh, director, I don't know his name, the, the guy who made Crystal Fairy and the... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember call his name either. Similar, Sebastian something. Yeah, yeah, similar situation where that Crystal Fairy one was like the one that he just made like while he was trying to, like on a break or trying to get the rest of his other one financed. Or right, whatever, and right. That's the one that broke out. And sometimes him. that's what happens is that, you know, the being looser and more improv improvisational, I can't pronounce Improvisational. It. Yes. Don't give up on your dreams, kids. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, a public service announcement from Awesome Movie Year. Um, so, yeah, I think we talked about the, the music and the visuals. Um, I, I like the performances. Tony Lung, as I mentioned, who plays Cop 633 or whatever, the second cop who doesn't get a name. Uh, he won Best Actor. Um, I really liked, I mean, even though the character maybe is irrational, I thought Faye Wong's performance was really charismatic. You can see why she's a huge star. Yeah, all four of the leads are good. It's a bummer that uh, the dude who played the other cop did. Like, I don't think he got the nomination. The rest of them did. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if he did. He definitely didn't win. Tony Long was the one who won. Um, but yeah, I, I think, and, and again, when a movie like this is, is not 
following a linear or logical plot. If if the performances are emotionally resonant, then you can, or at least I could kind of go along with it, but maybe you couldn't. Um, yeah, I think the moral of the story is don't eat pineapple after it expires. <laughs> <laughs> but he was fine. He ate 30 cans of pineapple in one night. Don't eat 30 cans of pineapple, especially if it's expired. <laughs> Uh, any, any other thoughts on, uh, on your, uh, it's feelings int- on this film? Yeah. Well, this is kind of the point of the podcast, right? We take movies that we know sometimes and don't know other times. And like you find really interesting things and where they fit within the context of that time and how they hold up now 25 years later. Cause if he had made the same movie today and it looked like this, you'd be like, Oh, that's a really cool looking movie. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. But back then it was like, you know. Janet Maslin broke out the dictionary <laughs> and found words that I didn't know, you know, right. to say how choppy and, you know, whatever it was. But um, I'm glad I watched it. I probably won't ever watch it again. Yeah. Would you watch another Wong Kar Wai film? Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Chungking Express. And I'm Jazz. And together we are the Feature Podcast, where we talk about movies and everyday life. Be sure to listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes Podcast Network. And be sure to follow us on social media at Twitter and Instagram at The Feature Show. And Facebook, it's The Feature Show with backslash Danny and Jazz. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year for 1994. We are talking about Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. And I think the legacy of this movie, especially in the United States, and we talked about how Quentin Tarantino brought this to the U.S. two years later and really was the big champion of it, um, is Wong Kar Wai becoming known here and getting this impression that he has now. I think anyone who is a film fan knows who he is, and he is known as this master of world cinema. I agree. And I also think the popularity of Hong Kong cinema, probably this is a defining moment of it for uh, American film viewers. Yeah. And I think up to this point, if people knew Hong Kong cinema, they thought of it as things like John Woo movies that are action movies and martial arts movies. And this really, despite the, the action crime elements that we talked about, this really expanded the vision of what a Hong Kong film right. is. The action, dude, the action is so like, I, you're not going to watch this movie and be like, oh, those action sequences are so awesome. By no. Any means. So they're totally, they're there. They're fine. They're whatever. You know? Yeah. This is not about being an action movie. And, and like we said, he made these characters cops mainly just to get financing. And I don't think he's interested in a, in a crime story or in, in suspense or anything like that. So Josh, out of five Christopher Doyle apartments, how many Christopher Doyle apartments are you giving this? Uh, I give it a, a three and a half out of five. I do think it has flaws, but uh, but I enjoyed watching it. I'm going two and a half right down the middle, yeah. which doesn't sound great, but you know it, that's really how I felt right down the middle. Half of the technical half of it I thought was masterful and the storytelling part of it I didn't care for at all. That's fair. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the legacy, uh, I think mainly it's about it's about him and uh, Wong Kar Wai and, and what he was able to do afterwards and and getting that that respect. And, you know, once you're endorsed by Quentin Tarantino, I think you can get your movies released in the U.S. Uh, without a problem. 
Um, any other thoughts that you had or influences that you could see this movie having later on? Well, I mean, as far as influences, you know, you're going to go, I mean, look, the, the biggest movie that came out of, you know, uh, something like Crouching Tiger, right? Which is a straight up, you know, um, action, you know, kung fu karate movie, right? Like, do you, would it have had that reach without something like this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think certainly the that, those kinds of movies, those martial arts films, the wuxia films, were more well known, more accepted sure. in the U.S. And he, and he had made a few. Yes, yeah, and he made more after this. Um, but I think this kind of movie, this this French New Wave ish uh, romantic drama, was not the kind of movie that people in the U.S. expected. And something like In the Mood for Love, which came later and was massively acclaimed and is still incredibly well-regarded, people were primed for seeing that because they saw this movie. Well, you know better than me then. <laughs> that is not. That is not. Well, no, what I'm saying with uh, Crouching Tiger is there were so many emotional connections in That's those true. movies, yes. right? So it's that mixture of what we would quote unquote think of you know a hong kong style movie and then adding this kind of emotional layer to it right right um yeah and then the influence of music videos too i mean that's something that he brought forth in this movie but certainly as the 90s went on music videos were a massive influence on on mainstream filmmaking and when music video directors moved into um directing feature films so that's maybe something he anticipated a little early yeah, I know. I wonder if he ever directed any uh, music videos I did not see. Yeah, I don't know if he did uh, for any people like Fei Wong or other uh, pop stars in Hong Kong. Um, and the use of music, too. I mean, obviously, Tarantino, when we, which we talked about in our Pulp Fiction episode, is a master of that. And, and you can definitely see that connection between him and, and Wong Kar Wai. Well, here. if you go back to something like The Graduate, even, you know, where they're using, you know, songs over and over again. I wish that more movies would do that. I think you're really able to, like, dictate a tone and a pace and, like, kind of marking points in a movie. You know, if you do use the same song over and over, but a lot, I mean, the majority of movies, I'd say like 99% of them don't ever do that anymore. So yeah, it's kind of a throwback thing. He actually did direct uh, Six Days by DJ Shadow. Oh, that's we'll put a link to that (laughs) on the website. Um, Yeah, that's a weird uh, choice for him. Um, The music, what I was going to say, so it didn't bother you that California Dreaming came up that many times? No, I like that song. It's got so many dope harmonies in there, right, Dave? It's a good song. Yeah, I mean, vocally, you can't do better than what they did, like the way they melded their vocals. No, that was was her story, bro. Right, no, I agree. I mean, it definitely had a reason to come up that many times, and it is a good song. I I did feel a little bit like, okay. You felt like the skies were gray. Yes. and uh, All the leaves were brown. Right, thank you for it. We're just going to quote all the lyrics to California Dreamin'. Um, so yeah, so that is uh, Chungking Express, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, take a look at us on uh, social media. Yes, we can be found at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and awesomemovieyear.com. Uh, Rob Van Dam social media. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my, I'm on Jay. I'm on all the socials as Jason Harris comedy or Jay Harris comedy. Find me. My website's go for Jason. And uh, tweet at Jason about Rob Van Dam. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at signal bleed at uh, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Josh Bell hates everything.com. 
And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Which you can find at piecingpod.com and on all the social media sites at piecingpod. What do we have next time? Oh, this is the most anticipated episode of Awesome Movie Year in the history of the long and storied history of the series, of the podcast. It is my pick for 1994. Two words for you, Cabin Boy. I think someone on, on, on Facebook, some Facebook friend of yours called it the greatest achievement in human history or something like that. And that would be fair. So tune in for Cabin Boy next time. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.